Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for September 28, 2018. I'm Brian Cardow, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. Today, on the eve of the Supreme Court's new term and amidst an ongoing nomination process very much suffused with political volatility, we are delighted to be joined by a very timely guest. During a long career as a journalist for Newsweek and other outlets, and as an author, he's frequently chronicled the high court's most politically tinged moments. He covered and wrote a book on the court's 5-4 decision sealing the 2000 presidential election for George W. Bush. Prior to his time at Newsweek, he worked also as a litigator in New York. He is David Kaplan. He's written a new book entitled The Most Dangerous Branch. That title a riff, of course, on Alexander Hamilton's surmise in the Federalist Papers that the judiciary, lacking as it does any express power to enforce its judgments, would prove to be the weakest of the government's three branches. As it's turned out, the exalted panel of nine life-appointed judges has evolved into the branch that, more often than not, seems to settle society's most consequential and most politically divisive questions. In that way, the judiciary has seemingly become preeminent and singular in selecting the country's path forward on essentially every issue that matters. Women's rights, gun rights, gay rights, privacy, labor protections, free speech, economic liberty, environmental regulation, all of them. In his new book, Mr. Kaplan posits that this governing dynamic, the seeming shift of power from the executive and legislative branches to a court comprising just a few unelected jurists, is unhealthy for a nation founded on the idea that the people should largely, and through their representatives, be able to govern themselves. And as over these past few weeks, and even more so the past couple of days, as torrents of political vitriol and vilification royal the latest SCOTUS confirmation process, it certainly underscores Mr. Kaplan's idea that it might not be an optimal long-term governing structure for a country's path forward to so entirely hinge upon the elevation of one person to the high court. So we'll get into all of that with Mr. Kaplan in just a moment, and into some of the ways he thinks the court's role might assume some more suitable contours. First, though, let me remind you a couple of things. Of course, uh, as always, CLE credit is available to listeners of the podcast. Find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Also, hope you've been finding us on your mobile device as of a few months ago. Our show became available on iTunes and the podcast app and just about any place you get your podcasts. So search for Weekly Appellate Report there and tune in. With that, we'll welcome in our guest today, David Kaplan. He's a longtime journalist and author, spent 20 years at Newsweek, has authored the new book, The Most Dangerous Branch, just released this summer. Mr. Kaplan, welcome to the podcast. Great to be joining you. Okay, so can you tell me a, a bit about the conceit behind your new book, The Most Dangerous Branch? Um I believe you began writing it back roughly when Justice Scalia passed a couple of years ago. Of course, uh, subsequent events kind of throw into sharper focus the the central theme of the book, just the, the, the monumental importance of uh, each new justice named to the court and, and, and the court. It's helped me a bit about the, the idea behind it and how it's uh, come to be. Well, I've been writing about the court and constitutional law and law generally for 30 years on and off. I've wandered into other areas and such, but... After Justice Scalia died, and partisans on both sides of the political aisle agreed that, quote, the next justice will affect American social and political policy for a generation, end quote, it occurred to me, as starkly as it had um, in my time as a journalist and author, that this really the state of affairs that you want, that a single justice among nine unelected unaccountable jurists would be determining 
that much policy. And whether you're a Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, libertarian or whatever, that didn't strike me as necessarily what we signed up for uh, in the country. And, you know, that dynamic hasn't changed. During the first round of the Kavanaugh hearings, the beginning of September, you heard a lot of questions about executive power. You heard about um, abortion, gun control, campaign finance. But there wasn't a single question from a senator asking, so what's the proper role of the court? Could you tell me, Judge Kavanaugh, uh, some areas of the law or specific cases where the Supreme Court chose not to get involved? And that wouldn't have asked him to reveal how he would vote in the case. Quite the opposite. Tell us about an, a case, a litigation, where the court stayed away. But that question isn't asked anymore, because all of us pretty much assume that the court... Uh, is going to be the final arbiter of a lot of social policy. And while it should intervene in some areas, speech, rights of criminal defendants, it doesn't mean that every important question of public policy ought to be resolved by judges. Quite the opposite. We live in a, in a, in a country of where we rule ourselves, we have representative democracy, and while not everything is up to the majority, a lot is, and the court in the modern era, which I mark um, uh, for purposes of my book, um, Roe v. Wade in 1973, beginning in 1973, I think you can uh, uh, argue the court has simply been too involved in American life. And that's not a conservative position or a liberal position. My own politics skew extremely liberal, including on abortion. I just don't think that victories on abortion, or for that matter, gun control or voting rights uh, or campaign finance, I don't think those victories should be achieved in court. They should be achieved in the political branch. And we've seen that play out certainly since I started working on the book in 2016. And I think the Kavanaugh circus just highlights how freighted court vacancies have become. It hasn't always been that way. And the 2016 presidential election showed how distorting seats on the court have become. You know, uh, 25% of Trump voters didn't like him or his policies. They held their noses in voting for him, but they said they were doing so because they liked the appointments that he thought he would make to the Supreme Court, and that's been proven out. They love Gorsuch, and they love Kavanaugh. We'll see if Kavanaugh gets confirmed. But when you're choosing a president, not because of what you think he or she's going to do over the next four or eight years, but simply because of who they're going to put on the court, that seems, in my book, um, to make the court too important. And the book is an argument that that should not be the case, as well as an inside look behind the scenes uh, at the court. These aren't, they live in a marble temple, um, but they're not gods. And they're just human beings. And I try, um, by having interviewed uh close to 70 law clerks, and a majority of the justices themselves, I try to illustrate um, what the place is really like, what they really do, and who these people are. I can't tell you by name who I talk to, because the condition of the interviews is that I do them on background, um, but uh, the book is trying to do both those things, provide a narrative of who these justices are, but also make this argument that we ought to be rethinking uh, the triumphant power of the court.
During your time when you were at Newsweek, you were pretty closely um, involved and, and covered the, the 2000 election contest that ended up in the Supreme Court that decided that race for, for George W. Bush. Do you remember, you know, that seems like an interesting and thematically consistent sort of predicate point um, that connects to this book. Do you remember at that time thinking, you know, wow, the Supreme Court deciding this election does seem to put it in territory where maybe the framers might not have originally intended it to be? Um, well, the 12th Amendment to the Constitution specifically describes what should happen if there is a disputed presidential election. It assigns to the House and the Senate responsibility uh, for deciding the election. And there's also an act of Congress passed after the disputed presidential election of 1876 involving Hayes and Tilden. For those who don't remember that from AP American history, um, there was a process set up. And neither the 12th Amendment nor the act of Congress mention anything about the Supreme Court. In fact, congressional debate back in, 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 after the 1876, elect, 1876 election made very clear we don't want the justices involved. So, yeah, Bush v. Gore is a perfect illustration of the point I'm trying to make in the book. And it may be 20 years ago, but I don't think it's ancient history. Uh, Bush v. Gore perfectly shows the self-aggrandizement on the part of the justices. And if you talk to them, and I wrote a book back then um, on the 2000 election called The Accidental President. Uh, but a lot of the book necessarily was going to be about Bush v. Gore. And the justices on both sides of the aisle, to some extent, saw themselves as the only possible body to resolve the case. They, they speak similarly in a range of other cases. Um, it's arrogant. And, you know, it runs counter to what the great Louis Brandeis argued a hundred years ago when he said the most important thing we do here at the court is not doing. And it could have been a shining moment for the Supreme Court in 2000 to say, you know, presidential elections really important, obviously, but this is for the other branches of government to resolve. For Congress, if need be, or in the first instance, the institutions of Florida, the Florida legislature, the people of Florida, and if necessary, the Florida courts. And while we may not agree with everything the Florida courts do, it's not for us to decide. We have separation of powers. Uh, there's limited government. The Supreme Court doesn't do everything. And, and Anthony Scalia, the great so-called conservative, would tell audiences and interviewers for years after Bush v. Gore, if we didn't step in to solve the constitutional crisis, who would? And, and think about that. There's no constitutional crisis. There's a delayed result to a presidential election, and the so-called chaos that resulted was democracy in full bloom. The military wasn't going to take over. We had a president at the time. And there would have been a president on January 20th, either Bush or Gore, or, if necessary, the next in line for the presidency until we resolved it. It may have seemed messy, but it wasn't a constitutional crisis. And when Justice Scalia argued to these audiences that we were the laughingstock of the world and the court had to stop things, I checked my constitution at the time. There's no national laughingstock clause 
international mm-hmm. laughingstock clause in the Constitution. And the great originalist, the great textualist, Antonin Scalia, was making it up as he went along. And, you know, in talking to many of the justices now, they would tell you, they would point out the window in some cases, those of, those who had good 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 views out of the court building. They'd point to Congress, they'd point down the road at the White House, and say, look at the dysfunction. Look at what doesn't get done. We're the only functioning branch of government, if not us. Boom. And that seems appealing, I guess, but to my eye and ear, that's arrogance personified. If If we elect members of Congress, who choose to get nothing done. That's what we chose. And if we don't like that outcome, then two and six years later, vote in new people in the House and new senators. And if we don't, that's on us. We don't need the court to save us from ourselves. That's the argument of the book. And listen, it's a hard argument to make, as I have found out, as the book has come out, and talk to audiences and bid on TV and radio, because many people confuse the outcomes of decisions that the court reaches and whether the court should have gotten involved. So when I argue that Roe v. Wade was an ill-advised opinion, my friends say, I thought you were pro-choice, David. I didn't realize you thought abortion should be outlawed, and of course I don't. I happen to be pro-choice. If I were a legislator, I would vote for very liberal abortion laws. I just think those victories should be achieved in the legislature, not at the Supreme Court, in the same way that I criticize uh, gun rights advocates who weren't willing to accept defeat in, in the D.C. City Council in 2008 and instead rushed to the Supreme Court to win, vic- to win a victory there that they couldn't achieve through politics. That's called the Heller decision in 2008. And, and, and there are lots of other cases. Um, I am an equal opportunity offender among liberals and conservatives. So in some sense, there's something for everyone in the book to like, or looked at differently, there's something in the book for everybody to hate. Sure. Um, always a good sign. So it, you, you do lay out the point in, in your book that um, – Notwithstanding all all of that, that courts and the Supreme Court, by design, um, it, it is a counter-majoritarian institution, one that is there really for the express purpose, or at least is there for, as one of its main purposes, to um, counteract or tamper down potentially ephemeral, maybe ill-conceived passions of the majority will, or to ensure that the majority will, um, you know, might naturally... Doesn't trample on the rights... Of minorities, right. correct, and and I completely, um, I, I completely support that idea. I don't want an impotent court, and there are many areas where the court should intervene. Take the First Amendment; it protects freedom of expression. You can't expect the legislature, Congress, or state legislatures to protect unpopular ideas. Popular ideas don't need protecting, but if you're a communist or a white supremacist. Uh, or a Nazi. No legislature is going to look out for your rights to speak up. The First Amendment ensures that you have those rights, and it is up to the Supreme Court to vindicate those rights. Same thing for the rights of criminal defendants and suspects under the Fourth Amendment, which prohibits unreasonable search and seizures, 
or the right to a fair trial under the Sixth Amendment, and so forth, and for the rights of minorities, um, uh, African Americans, uh, women under the Fourteenth Amendment. I completely endorse that idea, but that's limited. I also think that the Supreme Court ought to be setting boundaries for how democracy works. So that, for example, uh, the court has said that gerrymandering based on race is unconstitutional. Correct decision. But last term, as they've done several times over the last uh, two decades, they declined to get involved in partisan gerrymandering. But of course, partisan gerrymandering is exactly where the Supreme Court ought to get involved. In, in those cases, you've got the ins designing legislative districts to keep the outs out. Of course it's going to be that way. If the Democrats are in charge in a state, they're going to draw the line so that Republicans have less chance of winning. Same if Republicans are in control. In that situation, it's up to the court to enforce line drawing, redistricting, that is more reasonable, that gives those out of power, the have-nots, minorities, by minorities, I don't mean racial minorities, religious minorities, just those out of power, to give them a legitimate shot at victory at the ballot box. That kind of structural, uh, that, the enforcement of those kind of structural rights, is what, as well as the protection of First Amendment interests, um, the rights of criminal defendants, and so forth, I think that's what um, the court ought to be there for. And the court has had shining moments. Brown v. Board of Education, desegregating uh, public schools, decision in 1954, 1954 is one of the great moments in the court's history and in the history of the country. But saying that you think that's a good decision doesn't mean that you think every time the court intervenes, uh, it's correct. And, you know, I argue in the book that while Roe v. Wade, of course, is about abortion, the print, the larger principle of Roe v. Wade, of the court getting involved to stop debate on a matter of uh, hotly contested policy and declare for good that the matter is resolved as a matter of constitutional law, is exactly what the court did in Heller and the gun control ruling, or um, in Citizens United, the decision on campaign finance regulation, or in Bush v. Gore, resolving a disputed presidential election. They're the same peas in a pod. In some cases, the liberal win, liberals win, and in some cases, the conservatives win. But I argue they're related, and I think if you endorse the principle, if you endorse the court getting involved in Roe v. Wade, you're necessarily um, emboldening and enabling those conservatives who thought the court had to step in in Bush v. Gore. Now, people tell me uh, in debate, well, no, one was about abortion, and the other was about something else. But it's the larger principle. And some will say, well, women were an aggrieved minority in the case of abortion and deserve special protection, akin to the kind of protection I was describing earlier, where democracy can uh, run roughshod. Um, over certain groups. I, I'm not sure women were an aggrieved minority in 1973, but you, you hear the same argument, and you will increasingly hear it in a Trump-dominated court, that the so-called economic or property rights of people are being run, run over by legislatures, 
So zoning restrictions that prevent you from building a smelting plant in a neighborhood or clean water or clean air regulations that surely interfere with a business's ability to make profits, you're going to increasingly hear those arguments that those are constitutional rights being violated. And at a certain level, you know, in order to say that, no, those are not legitimate rights that ought to be vindicated, and it's these other rights, if you will, liberal rights that need to be vindicated, that kind of line drawing isn't as easy as it sounds. And then it comes down to raw power. If you want real politics to govern the court, fair enough. That's what you've had for 50 years. The the liberals have won more than the conservatives. It now looks like the conservatives are going to be in control for a considerable period of time. I would argue that we're a lot better off as well as consistent with the system we set up 250 years ago, trusting democracy instead of nine justices. It doesn't look like democracy can be trusted these days. Look who's in the White House. Look at many of the chuckleheads who are in Congress. But in the long term, we've done okay with democracy. And in the long term, I would rather trust us than judges. In that long term, speaking of maybe tilting towards democracy being the the, the, the more viable path forward as opposed to entrusting a court that sort of seems above... It's the least everything. of, as Churchill said, it's the least of bad alternatives. Obviously, yeah. the best alternative is to let you or I run things. <laughs> but that doesn't work so well, right? Yeah. You know, we, we, we believe in democracy for a reason. Limited democracy. There are limits. But I think we've skewed too far in favor of a country run by the judiciary. It, it just seems like the sort of circumstance that, like you say, half the time folks you know, agree with you, and then if the other half of the time their party is, is benefiting from the setup, they disagree with this point that the Supreme Court has too much Depends power. Depends whose ox is being gored. Right. Um, and I'm not referring to Bush v. Gore. <laughs> uh, so with that being the case, you know, with such institutional sort of inertia and um, things the way they are, how do you envision some sort of path forward for having a court with uh, you know, less outsized power. Congress, I think you mentioned, could potentially circumscribe some of the court's jurisdiction, though I don't believe that it really has at any point. Um, you know, there's been talk about term limits or maybe adding justices to the court. Um, you know, what sort of ideas do you think could actually have some effect of limiting the... Well, I the am Congress? not optimistic. Court stripping is probably unconstitutional. Most, not maybe not all, but stripping the Supreme Court of jurisdiction in, 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 in most areas, probably um, isn't acceptable. I think that would be a violation of, of separation of powers. I think term limits is an excellent idea. Life tenure might have made sense uh, in the late 18th century when people didn't live that long. But now, when life expectancy is much greater, and the last five justices to leave the Supreme Court served an average of, of 30 years, uh, it would make sense, for example, to have, as has been proposed by a lot of folks, a single 18-year term. It would also um, help us not necessarily look only to appoint 50-year-olds. There might be a lot of talented 60-year-olds who are now mostly ruled out because of age. And it would also 
once you got the system in place, make appointments to the court um, uh, regular. And a, a president you, uh, would get a certain number of appointments in a four-year term and a certain number in an eight-year um, term. But all of that would require a constitutional amendment, and I think those prospects are low because the, the party in power, quote-unquote, if you will, would never agree to it. It's only those out of power who don't, as Trump would say, control the court who would agree to it. You know, Trump, all this this summer, has said, we have to hold the Supreme Court as if it's just another political uh, branch of government. And, and none of us want that for the Supreme Court. We, in theory, think we have a Supreme Court for some reason other than simply um, to represent the views of the president and who appointed uh, particular justices and the Senate that has to confirm them. If that's all we have, a super branch, a super legislature, where its members stay for decades, what's the point of having the court at all? I think the best hope for the court, you mentioned court packing. I think court packing, which of course in 1937 was proposed by FDR and universally um, um, uh, criticized from both sides of the aisle and it died a quick death, and the Supreme Court quickly reversed gear and stopped throwing out New Deal legislation. Maybe it was intimidated by FDR. Maybe it was coincidence. The historical record um, isn't clear. But I think, given the hyperpartisan times we live in, it is possible that the White House and both houses of Congress were taken by the Democrats in 2020. That in 2021, you might hear them say, we're going to appoint two more justices. We're going to create two more seats on the Supreme Court, make it an 11-member tribunal. We're going to appoint two more liberals from a Democratic president, and we'll be back in control of the court. And what we're doing is making up for what was done to Merrick Garland, whose nomination by President Obama was obstructed in 2016. I think that's possible. I wouldn't be putting a lot of money on it. The Democrats are really bad at hardball compared to Republicans. They're not good at doing bad things, but I could see that taking place and being uh, the attempt to justify it based on the unprecedented obstructionism involved in blocking Garland. I think the more reasonable, modest hope for the court, and it's not a particularly optimistic hope, is for restraint on the part of the court. And I think the best hope for the court is the justice who will now sit in the middle, not because he's moderate. But because given the makeup of the rest of the court, four to one side, four to the other side, uh, I think Chief Justice Roberts will pass for the middle in much the way that Anthony Kennedy passed for the middle. Anthony Kennedy was conservative, but he did vote both ways. Roberts is far more of a movement conservative. Uh, he was a top lawyer in the Reagan administration. Uh, he helped George W. Bush and Bush v. Gore in 2000. Don't mistake him. You know, for a moderate. But I do think this Chief Justice has an institutional regard for and love of the Supreme Court. And he saw that demonstrated, I think, in the first Obamacare ruling in 2012, where he voted to uphold the statute, even though um, he thought it was a terribly drafted statute. And he was on the fence, as I reveal in the book. He ordered two drafts written after the oral arguments really wasn't sure which way he was going to vote. But I think he ultimately voted in favor of the court. He wanted to keep the court out of the maelstrom in a presidential election year. 
Had they thrown out Obamacare, the court would have been in the center of the storm for that entire campaign. And, and Roberts, more than most of the other justices, understands that the court's reputation, the court's prestige, is what makes it, what's what gives it power. Alexander Hamilton wrote, you know, in Federal 78 that he thought the court was the least brain dangerous branch because it was the government, it was the president who controlled the sword, it was Congress that controlled the purse, but the Supreme Court would only have any authority by virtue of respect and prestige. I argue that that's changed because at an insidious level, because the court has taken on so much unto itself and enfeebled Congress, distorted presidential elections, turned confirmation hearings into circuses, the court um, has done a kind of less obvious damage, but a lasting damage that shows no sign of abating. Will Roberts reign in the court? Will he say, for example, in a campaign finance regulation case, you know, I think those regulations are terrible, and maybe they're unconstitutional. But maybe, for the good of the court, we're going to let the legislature do what it wanted in that piece of legislation, and we're going to stay out of it. I think that's possible. I think Roberts legitimately fears the court being turned into just another political branch and being populated by partisans in robes. You see a lot of that being discussed um, in the context of Kavanaugh now. And I think that bothers different justices at different levels, but it bothers Roberts the most. Not because he's chief justice, because that's just who he is and has spent a career um, litigating before the Supreme Court. He didn't have a prior career as a law professor like Stephen Breyer. Um, he only was a lower court judge for a couple of uh, years. I think that's important to Roberts, and I think it's particularly important to him as Chief Justice. The Chief Justice has no more, has, only gets one vote, as Roberts likes to complain and jest. He votes first in conference. He uh, runs the court during all argument, and he runs the private conference where they all vote. He doesn't have a whole lot more power, but he does have a symbolic value, a power. I think most of the justices, other justices, respect him. He is a bit of a uh, there's a thing went on the first year between him and Gorsuch. There's no doesn't seem to be any love loss between them. They seem to be on each other's nerves. But but this Chief Justice, uh, now in beginning his thirteenth year, uh, carries a lot of respect. And I think at least in those cases, you could see him pull the court back some. You ask for optimism. That's about the best I can give. What what is the the more pessimistic? Um, potential outcomes, say, if the Chief Justice does not fill that Anthony Kennedy swing vote role. And we You'll see the most conservative court in a generation. It'll be a court um, that reminds us of what the Supreme Court was doing, striking down New Deal legislation in the 1930s, and a court probably wholly out of step with the country. Notwithstanding who's president, the court is, is the country is a largeless, largely centrist population. It skews left, it skews right, um, but not very far afield. If you have a court um, that successfully dismantles much of the federal regulatory regime, says that a lot of regulations 
uh, on clean air, clean water passed by the EPA, or securities laws passed by the SEC, um, or workplace safety uh, regulations passed by um, OSHA. I think if you see that that partial dismantling of federal power, which of course is something that Steve Bannon and and others still in the administration really want, for them, abortion is not the holy grail. Uh, they're happy um, to indulge and pander to social conservatives on issues like abortion and perhaps same-sex marriage. What's important for them is reducing federal power. And the Supreme Court has the ability to partially neuter the federal regulatory state. And if you see that, uh, it'll be interesting to see what the country, how the country reacts. Maybe the country will skew more liberal at, at the ballot box, but that doesn't change what happens at the Supreme Court. We, there are many times in American history, and I describe some of this in the book, but at a certain point, you know, you want to write a 300-page book and not something longer. There are plenty of times in American history where the Supreme Court has gotten out of whack with, with public opinion. And public opinion is loud and vocal, and the court brings itself back to center. It happened in 1937 with court packing and FDR. You could see it happen again, but who knows? I, Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, Neil Gorsuch, the three resolute um, uh, conservatives on the court right now, I, I don't strike me as the type um, to be particularly responsive to public opinion, Roberts, more so. I think Brett Kavanaugh, if he was confirmed, more so. Um, was some of uh, uh, Thomas Hardiman, a potential uh, replacement for Kavanaugh, maybe so. But these are not conservatives in the old way of thinking about it in court history. Um, the three that I mentioned, Thomas, Alito, um, and Gorsuch, are um, in some ways radicals. Clarence Thomas had will tell you that he doesn't much believe in precedent. If, he, if a prior ruling of the court was wrong, in his view, of course, on the day that it came down, it is deserving of no respect. Justice Alito, in leading the majority, throw out uh, um, uh, legislation this past term on the power of labor unions to collect dues, they reversed a 40-year-old unanimous precedent of the Supreme Court that came out during the Burger era. And Alito has said during any number of speeches, you know, that precedent is like wine. Sometimes it gets old and rich and deserves respect, and other times it gets sour. So, you know, for Sam Alito, um, precedent is just fine except when it's not. And remember, and Chief Justice Roberts was in the majority that struck down that law. So, um... I don't know that I would call that a constitutional confrontation. I think the Constitution envisions competition between the branches, but I think you could see the court at the center of a storm for years and years to come if it doesn't begin to learn how to back down. I don't think that's a good thing for the court, and I don't think that's a good thing for the country. Just one last one for you. The court's sort of adjacent to a pretty big storm at the moment, the, the Brett Cow. 
Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. From your sense of speaking with members of the court and lots of law clerks, you know, what do you think those folks might be thinking at the moment? The they hate there's so much They sorry. can't stand this stuff. Yeah, it certainly seems to reveal what is the worst kept secret that, you know, pretty much this is all politics that goes into, into deciding who gets on the court. Everybody recognizes that when the president appoints and the, and the Supreme Court and the, and the Senate has to confirm, that's it, that is an inherently political process. But the justice will all tell you that once they're confirmed, that's the last bit of politics they'll ever have anything to do with. Somebody, a justice or two, has to show up every year before Congress, deal with appropriations, they see each other at cocktail parties, and that's it. Justices are above politics. We don't do politics. We're not junior varsity politicians. And they will, they will all tell you that. Many have said so in speeches, in the rare interview. But, and so they look on anything that politicizes the court um, as anathema to the mission of the court, to the image and, 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 um, mythology of the court, the cult of the court, you can call it anything, all of those terms. But while they may have TVs on during confirmation hearings and watch, they hate this stuff. And they think it hurts the court. Um, and I think by and large, they're right. There is something to be said for pulling back the curtain and seeing that the great Oz is just a short guy with long, wiry hair pulling a bunch of, of, of levers. The court is just nine people, and I try in describing who they are and the rivalries and the idiosyncrasies and the frustrations, um, whether it's Clarence Thomas's continuing rage over his confirmation hearings from 30 years ago or the chief's um, occasional vanities, don't photograph me from behind, he tells the court staff it'll show my bald spot in the in the camp photo for the other justices on the law clerks each year, given out for clerks. He doesn't like being near tall clerks because the chief justice looks even shorter than he is. RBG's celebrity, Stephen Breyer's absent-mindedness, Neil Gorsuch, um, as, as, as someone at the court said uh, said to me. Hey, He's the one who has succeeded in unifying the court in his very first year there. How so? Most people can't stand them. Now, that's exaggerated. So I try to show that these, these are just people. I think, by and large, they try to do their jobs, not as politicians, but as jurists. And they try to be neutral. And they try to be, in uh, Robert's ill-advised um, uh, metaphor, they try to be umpires. I don't think they do a very good job of it, but I think um, I think they mean well. When they see what goes on with Kavanaugh, um, it disheartens them, it scares them, and they hate it. That said, while you can, at some level, blame a president for doing more cynical, more effective vetting to make sure that they get correct justice, the one who will vote the right way, we don't want a David Souter who disappointed the first George Bush. We don't want an Earl Warren who disappointed Dwight Eisenhower. We don't want a Byron White who turned out to be quite conservative despite that the Democrat JFK appointed him. You can blame a president and an administration for better vetting. 
you can blame a, the Senate for weighing justices purely by politics and by some of the nonsense we're seeing with Kavanaugh and that we previously saw um, with Gorsuch and on the other side what we saw with Hagan and Sotomayor. But I argue in, in my book that blame rests chiefly with the court itself. I think by inserting itself in all these substantive policy questions from abortion to gun control uh, and so forth. The court raises the stakes of who sits on it and invites the cynical vetting by the president um, and the Senate sideshow. So I think in the first instance, the responsibility is the courts. And, you know, when I interviewed the justices, the reaction I got was, we half agree with you. One liberal justice said that to me when I described the idea of the book. I half agree with you. Yeah. I don't like the decisions the other side gets involved in. Those are the ones we ought to stay out of. But the ones where I'm in the majority, those were good decisions. The conservative, a conservative justice said the same thing to me. I half agree with you. And of course, the opinions they didn't like were equal and opposite to what the liberal did like. That's the problem. What you really need are justices who are willing to forego a victory, if you will, on a particular issue, and just say, you know what? That is better left for another branch of government to resolve. That would be good for the other branches of country. It would be good for the court. It would be good for our presidential elections. It would be good for confirmation hearings. Um, that's what I argue in the most dangerous branch. Okay, well, we'll um, find out here soon enough as the term begins to open if the chief in the court might uh, take your advice. David Kaplan, author of The Most Dangerous Branch. Uh, thanks very much for being on our podcast. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's our show for September 28th, 2018 the eve of October term 2018. Be sure to tune in next week as we'll have a preview episode foreshadowing some of the term's most consequential cases and most salient issues. Until then, I'm Brian Cardell. Have a great week. <laughs>